with you, each one here who has trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are um, imperfect beings, but we have been set free. We do not have a sin nature as a believer, but we still live in these bodies, this flesh, that craves what it had in the past. And we need to buffet our bodies and make them our slaves. We need to walk by your spirit so we don't carry out the desires of the flesh. And we need to please you by what we do. And so help us that this passage, as long or short as it may be, would be understandable, would be useful, and would be applied in our walk. That we will not be the same, having spent some time looking at your word. So thank you for the privilege of being here. Thank you for the faithfulness of each one who's made the effort. Help them to realize they have a role to play in the lives of those around them. Maybe not look at the back of somebody's head and walk away, but help us to reach out and build relationships, I pray. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are still in the Sermon on the Mount. We will be until at least February, maybe March, Lord willing. Or if somebody new comes in, maybe that will set you free and you'll be able to relax. But as we look at this uh, sermon, we're in chapter 5, starting in verse 13. He starts expanding some things out. We have looked at the Beatitudes. We've looked at the stair-step relationship that God wanted with us from being broken in spirit to being those who recognize a relationship with Christ where we're actually being persecuted. We're living and speaking and acting just like him to where we get the flack he got. And so you watch those steps that we went through leading up to that that verify whether or not you're really saved, whether or not you've really recognized your spiritual poverty and mourned over it and become meek and submitting yourself to God. And as you looked at those stair steps, it leads up to this picture here when he begins to tell them that they are salt and they are light. And what's interesting is you ask yourself the question, who is he talking to here? These aren't New Testament believers. The Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. Christ hasn't even died yet. Who's he talking to? We look back in the passage. We realize in chapter 5, verse 1, when Jesus saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and opening his mouth, he began to teach them. So the impression is, who's Jesus speaking to? His disciples. How many? You think it might be 11. But when you go over to Luke 6, which is the parallel passage, the only other gospel writer that deals with the Sermon on the Mount, very skimpily, um, Luke did not see a need to re-examine that, maybe because Matthew had already covered it so well. But you go over to Luke, and the parallel passage in verse 17, it tells us that Jesus had just picked the 12, 12 to 16, of Luke chapter 6. Verses 12 to 16, he just picked his 12 disciples. He spent all night in prayer leading up to this. And it says in verse 17 of Luke 6, And he descended with them and stood on a level place, and there was a great multitude of his disciples. How many is that? What's a disciple? It's just a learner. John 6, the end of John 6, we're told that many of his disciples stopped following him because he told them to eat his flesh and drink his blood. They did not understand, kind of like what I get in trouble for once in a while. But as you're looking at this picture, it's a great multitude of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. And then verse 20, and turning his gaze on his disciples, he began to say, he's talking to disciples, but it may be a massive number of them and some outside looky-loos. But these people have gone to great effort to be there. 
Best they can tell is somewhere up around the Sea of Galilee. And where did it just say in Luke 6 they'd come from? Judea, Jerusalem. These people had traveled a long ways. They're trying to get there to get something, many of them. What were they getting from Jesus? They're getting healed. And Luke 6 tells you some of that as it goes into more detail. Um, they were being healed even of leprosy and demons being cast out and all kinds of physical ailments. So you're motivated on a physical level, which any of us would be. If they told you right now, if you went down to the fire station downtown La Pine, they're giving away $20,000 gift certificates to any resident of La Pine. Show up with your driver's license. Show them your address. They'll hand you a gift certificate. They'll authenticate it with your name on it. You can go to the bank and get $20,000. How many people would show up? Great multitudes. Because they're getting something. But would they stay and listen? These people did. And this is what's going on when you get to verse 13. and 14, he uses the little word you, and he puts it the first position in the sentence. That's called emphatic. He's put an emphasis on them, and he's saying you are the salt. In verse 14, you are the light. Trying to make an emphasis there. You learners here, not necessarily believers, you are salt, spiritually informed and responsive. This is what he's trying to bring up. I am bringing information into your minds that has not been taught to man. You're getting an opportunity and a privilege to know some things that allow you to be wise. Salt was a metaphor in that day. It isn't in America. We don't call somebody who's worth their salt. That has more to do with finances and, and the value of salt. But we don't use the metaphor, you are salt. We just don't do it. What's the metaphor? Yeah, another word for, for the word you're referring to, salt, you're actually meaning another intention. It's figurative. It's not literal. He's not calling them pillars of salt like Lot's wife. Read a commentary this week that said that wasn't literal. They go, well, that's a problem. Salt is definitely literal on some hands, and in this case, right here, it's figurative. He's not telling them that they have become some kind of salt. He's using a metaphor. You're and not even like salt. You are salt in the same way that you are wise. And I'm going to try to explain that a little bit. I gave you a handout in the bulletin. It gives you a translation that, that express, explains this a little bit in the translation. Try to help you to understand what the readers would have picked up when Jesus starts saying this. Or, I mean, the listeners. Here's a massive number of people that came. Many of them came to get something selfishly, physically. His goal is to put wisdom into them. That doesn't make them a believer. That just makes them wise. Be able to have skill in living. That's all he's doing, and he just did that with the Beatitudes up to this point. He's telling them what needs to take place in your life, and they're sitting there analyzing that, and when you get to the end in chapter 7, verse 28, they were amazed. They were astounded at what he taught them. It wasn't just the latter end. They weren't really impressed with the story of the storm and the building on the rock or building on the sand. It was the whole message. They had never heard this. The Pharisees and Sadducees didn't tell them that they needed to be spiritually broken because the Pharisees and Sadducees had never been spiritually broken. They weren't mourning over their sin, and they were not meek. And again, just go down the list. They weren't being taught by their religious people, which is the majority of churches in America today. I go out of my way to listen to sermons now and then. Somebody's name's mentioned. Somebody tells me, oh, we moved away. We got a great church. What's the name of the church? 
I, I did that with one given me recently. I, I check them out. I go look up their doctrinal statement. I go listen to a sermon, and I, I try to figure out, is it really a great church? What makes it a great church? Well, it has great music. Okay. Is that a great church? The majority of churches throughout church history have had great music? Not. When they, say, when they ate the Lord's Supper, they sang a hymn. What did they use for accompaniment? What were they doing with microphones? Could they even sing? Or was it just a joyful noise? But they sang a hymn. They were used to the idea that our voices, our normal voices, without all of the fill-in, without the reverb, without all the stuff that we add to it, were enough. That's all God wants. So we've been in, we've kind of been programmed a certain way to think that we have to do a certain thing. I'm not against music. I love music. It, it touches my heart, which is probably why John got stabbed with it too. It impacts me. It teaches so well. I'm not against it, but I'm going, but the focus here with them right now is the word of God coming from Jesus Christ. And he tells them flat out after giving them the Beatitudes, you are the salt of the earth. You are, what, what tense is that in? Present tense. I listen to sermons on this. I follow. I read books and commentaries on this. Too many of them said, you need to be salt. What does this say? You are the salt. Oh, you're no longer good for anything. So you used to be salt. What does this say? You are the salt. You cannot undo that. Who's he talking to? A great multitude of learners. Why would he say that to them? Why would he generalize that to the whole audience when he doesn't? Well, he knows. But you, there are a group of them that aren't even believers and are going to turn away from him. Okay, he's personalizing what? Okay, the you part is personalizing. But he's talking to this vast throng and he's telling all of them that they are salt. You understand why it's good for us to understand the metaphor in their day? All of you are wise. Why are you now wise? If you sat your child down and gave him a five-minute lecture, maybe, maybe better yet, a 30-second lecture, don't touch the wood stove in the winter. So we try to teach them not to touch the wood stove in the, in the summer. So they just get in the habit of it. Don't touch the wood stove. It, it'll get you dirty. It'll burn you, whatever. But you give them a 30-second lesson. What have they just become? Wise. If they listen to you, what do you think this audience is doing? You are now wise, but it doesn't mean you're automatically going to obey. That's why he works through the message, and I could bring hours into this to play just going through the message of the Sermon on the Mount. Why he goes back and says, you have been told that it was said, yet I say to you. He's clarifying them to get back on the message of Scripture so they're following the truth, not just what society is trying to tell them. The fact that each one of you is here today tells me you are wise. What do I mean by that? Because God has taught through the scriptures, and especially the writer of Hebrews, to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That you need fellowship. You need service. You need to go to help other people. You need to pray together as a congregation. But you are to gather. You are wise. You have listened to the scriptures, and you have obeyed today. Now, be real honest with me, because they can't see this on TV. How many of you woke up this morning and at any point in time said, I don't want to go to church today? Put, put your hand up. Just be honest. Okay? That's reality. That's all of us on different days. And there's a variety of reasons why you might feel that. But you told your flesh, no, 
or you wouldn't be here. Your flesh was saying, don't go. God was saying, go. God wasn't saying my sermon was the, the main thing of the, of the time. You may interact with somebody and have a major impact on their life today because you took a few minutes to talk and to genuinely fellowship around Jesus Christ. And they may share something with you today that they won't tell anybody else. And you've got to be careful with that information. But you may take it, pray with them, support them, check up with them, give them scriptures of how to deal with it. You, the, you all, or too often people think the pastor is the teacher. It's, it's not how it works. This, this is kind of like the big burner on your stove. But there's a lot of little burners. And then there's these port portable camp stoves that can go out. You're all teaching on a regular basis. What do you think he expected his listeners to do? If they really were wise, pass it on. So this is, I'm trying to get that groundwork laid as we go into this so you understand. You are the salt. You are the salt. You learners, you ones who are listening to me right now, you are the salt, not necessarily believers. You are spiritually informed, and you are being responsive in the present tense. Salt being a metaphor, which is just a big word for a figure of speech. You're not like salt. You are salt. You are wise. You who have received spiritual wisdom. How do you know that? Because just that crowd, I wrote down five things that stood out to me. They were pursuing Christ. Some of them may have been known for selfish reasons. Many of them were listening to him. They were listening to his message. So one, they showed up. Two, they sat there for this 20, 25-minute message. They weren't just there. To, they weren't pushing their way in. No, I just came for healing. I Don't stop talking. Just heal me. That, that isn't what we're picking up here. They were learning from him. They're called disciples in Matthew 5, Luke 6. Fourthly, they were amazed at Christ's teaching. They were astonished at what they picked up. That told you they were listening, and they're taking it in and going, what is this? That's what impressed them at the end. And then one other one you'll see in Matthew 7, verse 24, as he gets near the end, they were building their house on the rock. And this is a contrast between the rock and the sand. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. This is what he's trying to focus on here with a great throng, many of whom would desert him, some of whom might even have been in the crowd to cry out, crucify him. They were taking it in, but then they ultimately rejected it. And I have to give people freedom to do that. I tell people on a regular basis, just be honest with me. Well, you're a preacher. You're closer to God. No. I don't know who told you that, but that's not true. I deserve to go to hell. I keep telling you that. In spite of what came up recently that got misunderstood, I'm a sinner. Just because I haven't sinned in this area, I have sinned in some others. I'm not going to tell you what they are. You may use that against me. And people have. That's not the issue. The issue here is you are wise. You are the wise ones of the earth. You are the ones who listen to this message. How many people lived in Israel at the time compared to how many people were listening to this message? How many people even bothered to go listen to Jesus? Some of them are only looking for excuses to find fault with him. And they send out uh, whatever you want to call them, spies, I guess you could call them, and, and to go take, oh, he said this, oh, he said this. And they were trying to figure out ways. There weren't recordings. There wasn't TV. It wasn't like we have in our politics today where you can go back 20 years and find out what somebody said. 
Oh, they, they used marijuana when they were in high school. I'm not going to tell you if I did or didn't because I'm, I'm not trying to elevate myself. But the issue here comes down to what are you doing in the present tense? Who are you? He says, you are the salt of the earth. And he goes on trying to explain to them, but if, third class condition for those who care, this probable, this, this idea of uncertainty is implied here. If the salt has become tasteless, it doesn't have to, but if the salt has become tasteless, what he's trying to bring up here is the idea that it's passive. It's something that's happened to us. It, if it loses its wisdom, and the reason I can stress that here, the word for tasteless, if you did anybody... Look up some of these words. Anybody know what this word was? What's, what's the root form of this word? Foolish, and it's the actual word in Greek, moron. This is why it ties back in with the idea that salt has to do with wisdom. If anybody has become moronic, is what he's really saying here, has become foolish, has become stupid, not wise, unwise, is what he's trying to bring up, then how will it be made salty again? Remember when you go back to Proverbs? Let me show you a couple of passages here. Proverbs 17, and I could find lots of these. So I grabbed some that I thought made the point a little clearer. Proverbs 17.10. The writer of Proverbs is saying, A rebu- rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool, into a moron. What can you not teach a fool? Anything. He says a rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding. One rebuke than a hundred blows into a fool. You can beat them near the death and you'll accomplish nothing if they're a fool. So he's trying to tell them, if you've gone there, how are we going to make it salty again? How are we going to make you wise again if you've gone to the idea of just being plain foolish? If you become a moron, you become stupid. Can't help you. Proverbs 24, 7. You could probably find a whole bunch more of these. He says, wisdom, in Proverbs 24, 7, wisdom is too high for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. He has nothing to say at the main meeting place of the city. And nobody wants to listen to him anyway. Proverbs 27, 22. The last one I'm going to share. Proverbs 27, 22. Though you pound a fool in a mortar with a pestle, along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. Again, it's another flavor of saying, beat on him, beat on him, beat on him. You talk about being at the jail. You talk about working with people that are repeat offenders, as they call it. They're not getting it. They don't have any wisdom. There's no practical common sense about them. It's gone. They're not spiritually informed and responsive. They don't look at the dangers. They don't look at the consequences down the road. They're just wanting to do what they want to do right now, and I don't care about anything or anybody else. Me, me, me. That's a fool. This is who Jesus is trying to tell them. You don't want to be that. The fool has no wisdom. The the fool is useless. He's, He's unteachable, as we saw in Proverbs there. So what do you do with that? Unwise? What do you do with that salt that's good for nothing? The word for good there. Anybody look that up? Some of you are studying this on Friday night. I encourage you to study ahead of time. You may learn more than I can teach you. That would be great. What's the word for good? No power. It's the word for strong. 
He's saying they're strong for nothing. See, the, the English translations sometimes aren't helping us. Now, I don't know if I, I, the translation I gave you because of my limited time uh, was from a while back. I would have improved on it even more, the one you just got. I don't remember what it says because I don't have a copy of it up here with me. But the, uh, I take it back. I do have a copy of it in my bulletin. So he says, no longer wise or, or useful for nothing anymore except, be, okay, I didn't really explain that. But the idea here, they're good for nothing. They're strong for nothing. The word for good is strong, powerful, impactful. It is valueless. It is useless. It is worthless for anything. And those who are good for nothing are disdained. They're spurned. This is what they did to Jesus in Hebrews 10.29. They trampled him underfoot. They, you take that worthless salt, you, what good is it except to kind of be road cover? It's not going to do a whole lot. It may not even keep the weeds down, but it fills in the potholes. And yet when it came to Jesus in Hebrews 10.29, they trampled him underfoot. Why would I step all over the most priceless individual in the universe? Because I'm a fool. This is what the world's doing on a regular basis today. This is why when you witness the people, you can tell pretty quick right up front if they're open or not. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Another flavor there. We know what that means. Who would ever do that? What do you cast before swine? What do you call that stuff? Slop? Don't cast your slop. I mean, cast your slop before uh, swine, but don't cast anything that has any value because all they're going to do is trample it, maybe even eat it if it's small enough. They won't even know what's there. Do you think the crowd got the message with this first one? Maybe. It was cultural for salt as a metaphor to be understood this way. But he says, you want to be wise. You want to make this be the focus. You want to be one of those who receive spiritual wisdom. You want to listen to God. You want to take it in. Well, guess what all the Beatitudes were? Spiritually bankrupt? Wise man. Acknowledging the truth. Mourning over your sin? Wise person. To recognize that. Meek. What's the next one? Meek is gentle, okay. Verse 5. What's the next one? What's verse 6 say? Blessed are the... I'm sorry? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's a wise person. What else could you do with your time? Pursue money. Pursue power. Politics. Pursue making an impression. Pursue a name for yourself. You could spend a lot of time doing a lot of things. But when you pursue Jesus Christ, you're wise. You can walk right down through it, and he's coming to them, and he's bringing this in because he's going to come up with one command in verse 16 that he's leading all this up to. But you are the salt of the earth, and if it's lost, it's good for nothing. He's basically telling them wisdom is the focus of what you should be after. And a wise man, a salty man, is one who proceeds or pursues the truth. Then he moves over to a second one, just to make an emphasis. This would have been more, even more easily understood, and he gives them two illustrations to go with it. You are the light of the world. 
You are the salt of the earth. This, this physical world is what he's talking about in verse 13. When he gets to 14, you are the light of the cosmos. And he's trying to explain to them there this um, world system of mankind. This present arrangement of human affairs. You're the light to them. Who's he talking to? Not necessarily believers, but learners, disciples. You have the opportunity. You're being given some information now that you can take and shine with others. And you'll get to that in verse 16. You are the light to them. And again, emphatic you. You disciples, you learners, you in a great multitude are the light. You're spiritually insightful because of the revelation that you're receiving. You become light bearers, those illumined with the truth. What do you think they went home and talked about after this Sermon on the Mount? I can guarantee what it was 90% of the time. Physical. What did they talk about physically? Fred got healed. I don't know if Fred's going to hear this. Mary doesn't have leprosy anymore. She's had it for decades. It's gone. Is that what they talked about? Probably. That's what we talk about. We tend to focus on the physical. We focus on the things that are closest to home that really change our lives physically. What does he want them to talk about? The spiritual. What changes your life spiritually? What John was sharing when he was up here leading the prayer time. That's what God wants the focus of. You are the light. Not will be, not used to be. You are the light of this world system of mankind. And he explains to them that a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He gives an illustration. When you stop and think about it, what were cities like back in that day compared to the countryside? How much electricity was being produced? Only when you rubbed the wrong things together, you got a static charge. Or you saw a lightning bolt. Other than that, dark. If it was cloudy, the stars weren't shining, there's no moon out at night, dark. Talked to one or read one story of a guy said out in the jungle when it when a cloud cover would come over and there was no moon whatsoever he said you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. How do you know what you're doing? One, one missionary said he tripped over a log trying to find a, the outhouse because they actually had an outhouse there. And when he came back, he realized the log had moved. <laughs> it was a guesstimate, approximately like a thirty foot. Which one is that? The anaconda? I think it's that one. They asked, because they, it had, I think it had grabbed and eaten somebody or some animal. They knew it was around. This missionary tripped over it trying to get to the outhouse. No light. Well, then you don't have to worry about what you, what's around you, right? Yeah, you better worry about what's around you. It may have been sleeping. It may have already eaten something. They didn't care about something bumping into it. But a city set on a hill was a big deal. Even the oil lights, the lamps that they would have put out, or the torches that they would have used in the city to stay up a little later than you typically do out in the jungle or when you're camping even, although we bring all of our portable lanterns and flashlights. It stood out. You could see it for miles and miles away. There's the city. Why'd they build it on a hill? Not to make it visible. For protection. They, they put them up where you couldn't attack very easily. They could put walls around it, and they built city after city after city whenever they finally were defeated and crushed. There may be 30 layers of cities in some of those places over there. So that's why they were on a hill, but he, they were telling them when there's any kind of light on a pitch black night and you're looking at it, you're realizing 
That stands out. That's what he tells them they are. You stand out, wise ones. You want to have this spiritual insight. You stand out. The world doesn't have it. What are we doing with it? So it gives them a second illustration to try to reemphasize this. First off, the city can't be hidden. It can't be concealed or kept secret and invisible. You can't avoid seeing it. True disciples of Jesus stand out. True disciples of Jesus, Jesus become just like him. So he gives them a second illustration, and he says, You are an um, ornament, light a lamp, and put it under a, the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. He, he's trying to bring out the second illustration. You don't ever light a lamp for the purpose of covering it up. What, what, what good would that do? And I, we always think of a bushel basket that hide your light under a bushel. No, no, these are peck measures. They were made out of clay. They were solid. If you put one of these over, it's more like a um, clay bucket. It snuffed it out. You couldn't see the light. And it may have put it out after a few minutes. He says, you don't light lamps to be hidden. You and put them under a peck measure, this clay container for measuring grain. The impression there is everybody had one of those. It was, it was how you brought your grain home. You don't take that utensil that you all have and you need to carry your grain with and, and cover things up. But, and he uses Allah, it's a strong contrast. You put that lamp on a lampstand. This is not a candlestick. A lampstand is a projecting stone, and I've pointed that out before. It would be a rock. When you're building a house back in the day and you're making it out of stone, you'd pick a certain location in that room when you got to a certain height, and you'd put a flat rock that would stick out of the wall. Why would you do that? Okay, to set something on it, obviously, and it was going to be for your lamp, one lamp to a room. So when you walked in there with your lamp, you had some place to put it. Why do I want it up at that elevation? It lets the light shine down on everything, and my children can't reach it. It was practical, but it was practical in the sense that it would let the light shine down. So here you put this on a lampstand, this lampstand, this projecting stone in the wall, and it gives light to all who are in the house. It shines out. That's what the light's for. That's what a city on a hill does. You can't miss it. Where are the Christians today in this pitch darkness that we live in. Many of them aren't Christians. They're learners, maybe. They're coming to church to learn. They're curious, but they don't know Christ. They can't share something they don't have. They're not the light in that pure sense of the word, but they have wisdom. They could go home and pass on the gospel, and I've seen that happen before. I knew one person that became a believer because an unbeliever shared the gospel with them. It's not the unbeliever that impresses them. It's the gospel. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Explain to somebody. You can do that as an unbeliever. That's what saves people. That's what the Holy Spirit uses. But we are to give light to all who are in the house. Whatever the influence is that's around us is the impact God wants us to have. So in verse 16, he gives them a command. He says, let your light shine. Literally, I would translate this if I had a Jack Ebner translation. I would say, shine your light. Give out your light with an exclamation point. That's what this is. I don't know why they always put the word let in there. There's some reason why they translate it that way. 
but shine your light. Shine your insights, your revelation, what has been revealed to you. Shine it out. Let every people know about it. What are you going to talk about today? What's going to be the focus of your life this week? Are you going to confess to somebody at work, you know, I am, I am salt and I am light. I have all this information. They look at you kind of funny. But I've been given all this information. And I, I hoard it. I cover it up. I dilute it to where they can't even see it. I get around them and I'm supposed to be salt and I'm swearing like they swear. I'm telling dirty stories like they tell. I'm lying. I'm stealing things from the office. I'm acting just like them. And too many believers or unbelievers today say, why would I want to come to know Jesus Christ? You're no different than me. But when I let my light shine and it's commanded here in this imperfect tense, I am making a difference before men. Literally what he's trying to say there, in the sight of men, in front of men. So to everyone that I come in contact with is where my light's shining. You know how you want, if you want to figure this out, you think you're doing really well, I challenge you this week. Do a survey. Pick a number, at least five, maybe ten, that you're going to go after. Write down their names. Don't let them know. They don't need to see the paper. Go to them individually and ask them, do you know that I'm a Christian? That would be, be the blunt way of doing it. You could beat around the bush, <laughs> bushel, and you could say to them, what do you know about me? What stands out to you about me? If Jesus Christ does not come up in the answer, something's wrong. You know why we don't do it? Because of last week's message. If I make Jesus the focus of my life, I'm going to be persecuted. Because it's convicting. That's what happens when the preacher stands up here and says things about my life, where I didn't sin in a certain area of my life. And everybody is all of a sudden full of guilt. What did I teach you about that in the Beatitudes? What should you be doing with guilt? There shouldn't be any guilt in the life of a believer. If you still have guilt about some sin in your past, there's something wrong. You take it to the Lord, you accept the fact that he has forgiven you, and you turn around and you practice the same thing with others. Ephesians 4, 32. Forgive others even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. You don't live there. You don't feel beat up because I say something that came out wrong. I got to get off that or I'm going to do it again. And I can't do the same thing. I had some things said to me this week that weren't very nice. And I had to wrestle with this. Let it go, Jack. What I've done to Jesus is way worse than anybody could ever do to me on planet Earth. Let it go. Forgive them. Love them. Don't ever bring it up again. If they say it again, learn from it. Take it in. They had a reason for what they said. But he's trying to bring up here, our light is to shine before men. It is to be obvious with those we come in contact with. What? To do it in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That they may see as a hint of claws. It's in order that they may see. This is the goal of shining so that they pick up are good works. They observe, they witness, they perceive, it, draw, they, it draws their attention to our good works. What are, what are our good works? What's the word he uses here for good? 
Again, you have to look these up. Three different main words in Greek for good. This one is intrinsically good. It's deeds and actions that are ethical, righteous, noble, honorable. It's a specific word. It's not agathos, which are things that are genuine and true. It's kalos. It's the things that are um, ethical, righteous, noble, honorable. I don't want to get off because I'll distract you from what it is. But it's intrinsic in them. They're worthy. They're excellent. They're distinguished. They're better. And we could go on and on to describe this word. This is what they see in us. How do I stand out? And so some of them are going to look at you and be convicted and say, who, who do you think you are? You're standing on your pedestal and telling me the sinner that I need to become like you, the saint. Is that what you, and some people react that way. No, 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 no. If, since they were honest with you and they shared that, no, I'm the sinner. In fact, I'm the worst of sinners. And I'm talking up to you and telling you, here's what Jesus did for me, so I know he can do it for you because I was far worse than you are. What do I need to do to explain it to them? But I let my light shine before men. I get around people. I do not hide. When you're in a job, some of you are in jobs that are people jobs. What's the first thing you want to do when your job's over? Get away from people. Well, guess who's at your house typically? People. Little people, big people. And you come home, and how do you treat them? Howard Hendricks taught us in seminary. He said, when you're done with your day, because the pastor, it's the same way. It's a pain. Dealing with a lot of bad stuff constantly. And you never have enough hours in the day. He said, when you get done at church, on your way home to your wife, and he was focusing more on our wives, he says, you find a dumpster. Somewhere along the way. And you use that dumpster every single day. And you take all the stuff that's weighing on you from your day and you throw it in the dumpster so when you walk in the door, you're not thinking about any of that stuff. And once you get past the dumpster, you start thinking about positive things that you can do, righteous things, noble, honorable, ethical things that you can do for your family. What's the first thing I'm going to do when I get home to make sure my wife knows I love her? Yep, you don't kiss the dog. You don't kiss the kids. You don't kiss your mother if she's living with you. Everybody's put us. You kiss your wife. I was taught that. It wasn't automatic for me. Although my dad and my mom had a super tight relationship. They kissed all the time, and we ran away all the time. <laughs> yep, that's how we responded. But I have to make conscious decisions of how I'm going to act because my flesh is screaming at me. The, the, my flesh is saying, go home and gossip everything you can to your wife. Tell her every bad thing that happened to you today. My wife is not wanting that. My wife also had a day, and she may want to do the same thing back to me. I don't mean the gossip part. So I go home with listening ears. No, 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 I've been doing it all day. Yes, yes, yes. That's how you let your light shine. Did I do that perfectly every day? No. But I hunt her down when I've been gone from the house for a while. Sometimes I only get one lip. It depends how, how the day went. Most of half a lip because I, I missed. And so sometimes I have to kiss her again. No, oh, it didn't count. But, but, you're, but you're mentally setting aside this idea, who am I? What wisdom and insight has been given to me in Jesus Christ? that I can use and put into practice, the world is watching. It isn't difficult to impact the world. It isn't difficult for them to see our light shine. You can't hide a city. You can't hide a lamp on a lampstand. He's trying to tell you this is simple. 
that you can make your salt saltless and you can put your light under a bushel. They can't see it. So I've got to figure out what are those things that are getting in the way. What are those things that are selfish? There's many Sundays. In fact, I'd probably say the majority here lately. When I get up in the morning early because I need to study because I'm always behind. And I don't want to go to church. Didn't I just tell my wife can nod her head. I don't want to teach or be at Sunday school. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to do announcements. I don't want to do the prayer time. I don't, I don't want to do anything. Leave me alone. That was just today. I get here, what did God do? I turn it over to him. I got straightened out a little bit, and I turn it over to him. John steps up, does the announcements, does the prayer time. Others are stepping up, taking over. Mark comes up, tells me, we got you covered. We're, we're good for the next three weeks. You can go away and relax. The music, we'll, we'll take care of it. And if Jim can't do it, Mark quietly said under his breath, I'll lead the music. Didn't you, Mark? Okay, thank you. But I don't think that's going to happen because Jim's planning to be home. But you, you're, you, you get all, we get all worked up, don't we? And I did. And God goes, relax. Relax. It's not about you. Yeah, I say dumb things once in a while. I get in big trouble. Yeah, you don't want to hear me whine anymore. I got to get back to where the light has full strength and it's shining out because Jesus Christ has given me wisdom and insight, salt and light to my life that I can pass on to others. That's what I'm after. That's why it's a desperate thing for me to spend time in the Word every day. You've seen me when I haven't. If I go two or three days, I'm in big trouble. I don't know about how you do. But its goal here is to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And secondly, glorify your Father. It's a subjunctive. Both of them are. These, are. these are possibilities. That they may see your good works is not automatic. And that they may glorify your Father. You think, well, how can unbelievers glorify your Father? The reason they can glorify Him is typically because most people don't understand what doxa means. Doxa simply means to give credit to. This is what the centurion did to Jesus Christ when he saw Him hanging on the cross. He recognized Him. He wasn't a believer. It didn't say anything about him becoming a believer or even worshiping. But he recognized the difference. Christ's light shined on the cross in such a way that the centurion said truly he was a son of the gods. This guy stood out. This is what God's after in our lives. We're not machines. It's not automatic. But I've got to walk by the Spirit in order and put the scriptures into my life in order for the Holy Spirit to make my light shine brightly. My flesh isn't going to do it. And here I am. What did I do to my flesh this morning? I told it no. I woke up at five minutes before I knew my alarm was going to go off. I told myself, go turn it off. It's going to wake up Beth. How'd I do? Didn't make it. <laughs> Next thing I know, my alarm goes off. And I apologize to her. Oh, sorry, sorry. Turn the silly thing off. Lay there another five minutes. I don't want to get up. You don't get like that. We struggle in the flesh. We buffet our bodies. We are responsible to, to be salt and light, to be wise and insightful in the way we walk. You don't have to trust me that this is what this is about. I can give you some tools to look up some things that give total uh, confirmation to what I'm saying. But the, the desire is that the unbelievers around us will give credit to God, your Father who is in heaven. That's what they're going to acknowledge. Why are you a light shiner? 
because of Jesus Christ. And they're going to recognize that's the only reason. I've seen them go through all kinds of things. And some of you have had horrific experiences, even recently. How does a believer come through that? Do we grieve? Yep. Do we struggle? Yep. Are we tempted to get angry or to lash out or to avoid people? Yep. And I have to make some decisions. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let my light shine. I'm going to let Jesus Christ have control of me. And I have to consciously declare it, pray about it, work at it, call up scripture to remind me of what the right course is. But I'm to let my light shine in order that God the Father may be given the credit. He may be extolled. He may be magnified. He may be even adored and worshipped by people. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Who are those people? Unbelievers. They're not getting saved. They're acknowledging the truth. They have no choice but to bow the knee. Especially when they see him. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10.31. That's where the world's headed. We have an opportunity to let our light shine. They're either going to come to the light and ask questions and come to know Christ. Or they're going to start throwing rocks at the light, trying to put it out. But those are only two choices. How are we doing? Positive message, exciting, motivational, makes you want to just jump for joy and run out into the world and turn it upside down. Right? That's what the readers were hearing when Jesus was talking to them. This is what they're picking up. This was a necessity on their parts. They had major changes to make. That's why they were astonished. They were amazed when he got done preaching. What was that? They're all looking at each other. 20 minutes later, what was that? It's Jesus. The God that if you know him today, you will be with throughout eternity. You don't have to listen to Jack when you get to the New Jerusalem. You can listen to Jesus. But God's still going to use us. You're still going to have responsibilities on planet Earth even as new believers, I mean as uh, resurrected believers. But then you can say, well, I don't know the answer to that. Go talk to Jesus. Or Paul, or Peter, or or somebody else. Jeremiah, Isaiah, you know, somebody that knows more than me. But the command, the command, let your light so shine, shine in such a way that they may see your good works, your intrinsically valued works. Are they there? Don't hide them. Don't let them get sidestepped. Don't don't let the world creep in and, and, and push away the light. You have to resist. But if you don't know him today, it's simple. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Trust in him as Lord and Savior. Recognize he died on the cross for your sins. You can't. I can't. And that he rose again victorious over the grave. He conquered this debt of sin. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's made it possible for us to have new life in him, not in ourselves. This is why I can be real. And I can tell you my sins when I feel like it, privately, individually, with a threat of death on your part. But I don't do it public anymore, especially on the thingamajigger up there recording me. What are you doing with your information? What are you afraid of? 
Give that fear to God. Let your light shine. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your son. We're grateful for this simple little message. We need to keep reading it as a whole. We need to put all the pieces together to understand the impact that it was intended to have as one sermon. We need to look like Jesus. We need to submit to him as spiritual beggars. We need to mourn over our sins. And then we need to move on with a submission and a hunger and thirst after righteousness. Father, help us. Our world's getting darker and darker. And there are people still out there that want to know you. They haven't taken the mark, per se. They haven't rejected you. They haven't become total fools where they're throwing it all away. They're asking questions. Lead us to those people and help us to give them answers. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.